Well, hello everybody, it's Martin Kiernan here again, and we're continuing our theme of transmission, and this time I've got a proper scientist on board. Not, I'm saying many of the people we haven't spoken to haven't got some science, but we're talking now to Professor Catherine Noakes, who's Professor of Environmental Engineering for Buildings, and is far more versed in physics than I am, or suspect any of my colleagues. And Catherine, we've been asking people about transmission, and should we stick with our existing contact droplet and airborne or should we change and why? And have we anybody got any better ideas as to where we should go in the future? Because, the, you know, hopefully as things calm down and the debate gets a little bit less emotive, then we might be able to have some good discussions about this. So, you know, coming from an engineering background, I know you've done work on air and on contact, uh, you know, what fomites. So what do you think? Uh, yeah, so I do think we need to think about changing this because it isn't as simple as saying that that diseases, any disease, falls into a, a specific category of is it contact, is it droplet, or is it airborne. Um, there's a continuum. So if we talk about a respiratory disease, then people produce aerosols and droplets at the same time. You cannot have one or the other. It's, it's both and they're always there. And in fact, the evidence now really suggests that that close range exposure that people have is more because you're exposed to the highest concentrations of aerosols in that immediate exhaled breath or that cough rather than big droplets. Um, think of it a little bit like a cigarette. If you have a cigarette, then it's very um, highly concentrated, very close to that cigarette far side of the room you can still smell it but it's much less concentrated and mm. the same thing happens with with aerosols they they um they are less concentrated the further away you go um but i also think that there's a relationship between air and surfaces too so we mustn't forget that contact which we typically think of we touch surfaces they're contaminated we then spread through contaminated hands but actually deposition onto surfaces is part of contact so the air plays a role there and I think therefore we need that much more open conversation about recognizing this interaction between the air in a room and human behavior and that will be different for different diseases so it'll be different for a respiratory disease where we're concerned with predominantly aerosols very very small respiratory particles liquid particles that evaporate that carry microorganisms compared to for example mrsa on skin squamy which can still be dispersed into the air through for example bed making but maybe on slightly larger particles or dry particles in a different way and then compare that again to things like dispersion from drains or showers where we may have a combination of both very large droplets and smaller aerosols that may cause transmission through an airborne route, but also through deposition onto surfaces. Okay. So we've gone down the route of aerosol generating procedures as presenting the best, you know, the greatest risk. But as you just said, unless you're dead, you're producing aerosols just by speaking and, and indeed breathing. So should we review AGPs? Because I quite like the Australian approach where they were talking about aerosol generating behaviours, which is shouting, talking, singing, that sort of thing. The things that we yes, do that and, might generate and again, more. I think, I think when we're talking about human respiratory sources, then we are thinking about all of those behaviours. And sometimes a procedure 
might be a, something that, that enables more aerosols to be generated. Um, maybe the procedure itself or because the procedure um, results in the patient coughing. Um, but you're right, there, there are, there's evidence certainly for many diseases that um, those, as you say, aerosol generating behaviours are more likely to produce aerosols. So if we're sat passively not really doing anything, nose breathing, you probably are producing far less than if you're talking, singing, coughing, shouting, etc. Um, and again, we need to think then about who's doing what and when. And also I think the stage of disease, I think there's been a real focus on aerosol generating procedures for people who have a very severe um, stage of COVID hmm. when actually we know that they are, people are most infectious at the point they first get it, possibly yeah. even before they show the symptoms. So we're not, we're not sort of matching up necessarily the, the right infection control procedures with the right people. Yeah, I, mean, I remember course, uh, I at the beginning there was, there was, at the beginning there were a couple of papers that suggested people are involved in lots of AGPs, even if they weren't wearing FFP3 masks, weren't picking up COVID. But you're right, that's because they're much further into the disease process probably and they're probably because hardly that infectious. wasn't infectious anymore. Um, yeah. And I think that, that was the thing that obviously we had to learn that because I think, you, you know, the evidence from, from other diseases, for example, SARS, was very much that it was those severely ill patients in hospital that were um, transmitting to healthcare workers um, mm. as opposed to that sort of early stage transmission. Um, and I think then this starts to lead on to what you do about it. Aha, okay. Um, so any good ideas? Um, so I think the first one is, I think it is difficult because I think, you know, going to a situation where every single person wears a, an FFP3 mask and is at 12 air changes an hour continuously is just completely impossible from a practical perspective. Hmm. So being able to recognise where you've got the highest risks for different diseases and therefore understanding transmission is really important part of that. Um, I would like to see more... Um, direct relationship between the the environment and infection control procedures at the moment it feels quite separate that um you know the guidelines for infection control will will have huge amounts on washing your hands and bare below the elbows and and you know the the processes for cleaning and all of the mechanisms there but then when it comes to air it's kind of assumed that that's done by estates um and i think but actually the reality is many of our wards in hospitals are naturally ventilated. It's not the estates team that enable that ventilation. It's the nurses, the healthcare staff on that ward, even the patients who enable that ventilation to happen or not. Mm. So recognising, first of all, that the air matters beyond just our um, isolation rooms and operating theatres and intensive care units, that it matters throughout a whole hospital everywhere recognizing that that requires then understanding um, on the part of um, full frontline healthcare staff, but actually it also requires a new understanding on the part of the engineering and the states teams as well, who mm. need to understand much more about why this matters for different diseases in different locations. I was going and to I ask about that. Yeah. yeah. You know, would they have that level of understanding? 
you know, would they have that level of understanding? Because we we don't understand airflows, but they they may not understand the impact of the airflow, but they might may, yes. may get the airflow. So I think at the moment they probably understand airflows, but don't understand why they're needed in different places and the, the risks in different places. Some mm. do, um, but same is true with IPC. Some 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 know some know this very well. Others don't, but I, I think we have to take this not just in IPC as well. This is, the, you know, IPC are not delivering the frontline health uh, care. It's 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 the nurses, the doctors yeah. on those wards who who need that knowledge, and mm. need the knowledge about technology as well, because there's an awful lot of technology out there that people are trying to sell. Some of that technology is very good. Others are um, probably snake oil. Mm. separating those out and knowing what you're looking for and why and when is a real challenge. Okay. Can I go back to something you said a while ago about contact with surfaces? So you do get deposition. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the route of transmission from that surface to somebody else then? Is that like to be somebody touching and touching a mucous membrane or or is it re-aerosolization from something like the floor through brisk movement and that sort of stuff? Because it's pretty dry. So again, I think this depends, depends on your pathogen. So I think for some pathogens, maybe respiratory pathogens, I think it's a feasible route that you touch the surface, you touch your mucous membranes. I suspect it's a lot lower um, than than the direct inhalation, but there's you're certainly not evidence to discount it as a route. Mm. Um, I suspect the same true with things like norovirus. I suspect people do touch surfaces and they've got it on their hands. It's quite a low dose you need yeah. you lick your fingers and then you've got it but i agree i think sometimes we might get re- aerosolization for certain pathogens um which then may present either an inhalation route or another deposition route onto more sensitive areas wound sites or equipment or things um so i think it's worth thinking i think think we need some more research in this area we need to understand it better but if you think about the air being upstream you know, you can wash your hands and wash clean your surface as much as you like, but actually the surfaces don't get contaminated in the first place, then you've gone a long way to solving that problem. So if you if you've controlled your air well, you reduce that surface contamination. And then what you're tackling is the residual that comes from hands and of course some deposition we can't create sterile environments i know people have you know some people have worried that if we we clean the air will everything be too sterile no we're not gonna it's not like water this we can't make it completely (laughs) sterile we're always interacting in it there's always going to be always going to be microbes in that air Mm, okay um so what's the way forward for us as you know talking together do you think is you know can we reach some sort of consensus because at the moment there seems to be quite a lot of polarization which isn't always a comfortable place to be really yeah i think i think it is difficult and i think i think the tension is that there's a a desire to have simple guidance Hmm. but simple guidance for something that isn't simple um and i think recognizing that it's complex is part of it i think recognizing that it will never be a hundred percent perfect, and but just because something's not perfect doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And you know, the same goes back to surface hygiene and hand hygiene. Hand hygiene that is never a hundred percent perfect, but we don't abandon it. Mm. And we need to think about the same with the air. We, and I think we're also in a position where 
moving from where we are now with the healthcare estate we've got and the the real challenge with resources to a place where everything is fantastic is a massive long process you know we we've we've got massive challenges with some hospitals great we've got big challenges with some um, yeah. but actually you know improving the air in those hospitals it's not going to happen overnight it takes time and we need mm. to think carefully through that process but in the meantime i think i think we should be careful with the word droplet um i would really love to know what people who've not been involved in this debate visualize when you say droplet what do they actually perceive it as do they think it's a big spray a big big <laughs> splat or do they do they actually perceive it as being something tiny and inhaled because if it's the latter then the word doesn't matter my no. worry is that they people hear the word droplet and think large stuff drops out the air don't need to be I, I'm, I'm i'm a meter and a half away i don't need to worry hmm. um and, that's and not the case I, I don't think I don't think that's the case. I and mean, I think, you know, the idea that droplet, we don't need any specialist ventilation for. We don't need any ventilation for, particularly. That's wrong. We do. Um, given, given that hospitals are very unlikely to be able to switch to specialist ventilation, and we do go down, like some suggested, at the airborne route, then we are going to have to re increase our respiratory protection, aren't we? It, because we're trying to deal with the health system. You've got some very new modern hospitals and some that were built 100 years ago. And that's not going to change overnight, but a guideline has to sort of fit all, which is a bit tricky. I think we are. And I think what we'll have to do is think about this in terms of risks in different places, who's at risk and when. Um, so, yes, if you are, if you're the person who is doing close range care to um, the infect, at somebody with a respiratory infection, you need respiratory protection because there's no real other way of solving that. Um, but other people who might not be giving that close range care might be, if we can improve the air in those environments, and that might be, a, you know, that's not necessarily we have to t turn every room into an isolation room. That might be that we ensure that there is a reliable ventilation in that room as opposed to hit and miss because we shut the windows um mm. and perhaps sometimes that might include adding in additional um, systems it might add in extract fans or um adding in air cleaning devices to ensure those rooms are are, are then adequately ventilated mm. then it oh. then it becomes a, a, a balance of risks and i think then that will vary with different diseases with community prevalence of those diseases with vaccinations and I think we have to think of this beyond COVID. I know COVID's very, it's very tempting to use that as the hook, but there's an awful lot more to it than just COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's exposed it at the most extreme end. In, yes. And uh, the next coronavirus could be a bit like one of the previous ones, which actually had a higher mortality rate, but didn't seem to be quite yes. as transmissible. So it's almost yes. a, a great test, but... Yeah. So thanks very much, Kath. It's been fascinating to listen to you. And I, I hope that... IPC and engineers get a lot closer together in their organisations because I'm not even sure that we really completely understand all our airflows in all of our rooms of our organisations and that would be a good starting point to make these risk assessments, wouldn't it? It would. I and I, I, I agree, we don't. And we probably never will, but we need to move that understanding forward. Hmm. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Kath. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yep. Very welcome.
Well, hello everybody. Welcome to um, this topic of airborne contact and droplet precautions. Um, my guest uh, here is distinguished professor Lydia Maraska. Uh, Lydia is a distinguished professor of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Queensland University of Technology, along with many other distinguished appointments. Thank you so much, Lydia, for joining us today. My pleasure. So, Lydia, probably a simple question for you to start with, but do you think the current contact droplet airborne terminology needs to change? Well, to be honest, I didn't know that this uh, kind of dogma existed uh, before the beginning of this pandemic. I worked on the topic of particles from respiratory uh, activities uh, since um, SARS-1. Mm. Uh, and this uh, was just an addition to the portfolio of our activities on airborne particles, just different particles, bigger particles. Uh, in aerosol uh, physics, I'm a physicist, so that's, mm. that's where my starting point is. We are talking about uh, aerosols. Uh, aerosol is particles uh, suspended in a gaseous medium for long enough to enable observation. And droplets are liquid aerosol liquid particles. So droplets is just uh, a subset of aerosol, of particles. It has nothing to do with the size mm. or with this, what I've learned during the pandemic, that that magical five micrometer boundary <laughs> between one and the other. As I said, I didn't even know because phys physics doesn't uh, recognize this kind of man-made uh, uh, or human-made boundaries. So whether it has to change, it didn't exist. Uh, this uh, <laughs> this dogma didn't exist in some areas. So I guess this mm. is the best answer. Uh, this is, is not really. Uh, it's not really something which is scientific, and yes. therefore we should we should take a scientific approach to this. And in any prof professionals professions which mm. don't take this on board, will have to have a fresh look at this. Yes, I think um, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what, what this has highlighted in recent 12 months, I know we caught up probably, I don't know, maybe 12 months ago on this podcast and spoke about spoke about uh, about this topic. But, you know, it seems like there's been a disconnect between what has been discussed in health and what things have been called and what's discussed in the scientific and physics world. And, you know, in this area, it's something that this is, this is physics and this is science. And that's uh, probably where the starting point needs to be. So I know with that sort of background in mind that you've just described, bearing in mind that in the healthcare settings, that's this terminology of droplet and airborne has been tightly held to and has been in place for a long time. Now, we get the sense that there's this desire to move away from that. What would you think could be some good ways to describe this? Um, noting that, you know, there are some people on either side of this fence. And, and so do we need a new terminology to try and describe what we're talking about? Or can we just call them aerosols? What's your, what's your thought on um, how we can come together in the two different disciplines and make, make sure that everyone knows what we're talking about? There's a very simple solution to this, uh, which I've been slowly implementing, and it seems that everybody is in agreement. Mm. We will call it a particle. Mm -hmm. And everybody seems to be agreeing. It is proper, properly from the science, from the, from the physics point of view, it is a particle. And it is also uh, acceptable by um, medical profession. It's a particle. Mm. So mm. this way, if we are talking about particles from human respiratory activities, mm -hmm. 
so it doesn't then seem to uh, encroach of any of this old terminology and it seems mm. that everybody is uh, in agreement with this so to me this is the simple solution for, the, for this would we need to refine that to, to respiratory particles so that we differentiated that from other particles that the body might shed i mean would you in the science world for example if we were if i was shedding skin cells and uh, bacteria uh, would you be calling those particles as well or would you have another term because that's a sort of there's a differentiation of that in terms of contact precautions in the healthcare setting so would you think that respiratory particles would help refine that a little bit more or do you or would you not would in the science world and physics world particles just means respiratory particles I would say particles, just staying with particles from respiratory activities. When we are talking about, so that these particles can contain viruses, they can contain bacteria as well, whatever is in the mm. uh, in the respiratory tract and it's generated uh, within the particles. When we are talking about different, uh, like you, you said, skin shedding, mm. um, the, these objects will be significantly bigger. They won't be of the size of the of of the particles from respiratory activities. They would be bigger. They would be heavier. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't be easily floating in the air. Okay. So I don't think they would. I don't, I don't think they would come. They wouldn't come into the class of airborne particles. Okay. So in the, so in the physics world, the science world, the term particles refers to things that are in the air. Well. Uh, uh, again, uh, there are many different areas of physics, yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, we are talking about elementary particles. And I was once asked that question by somebody from completely out of scientific field, and they uh, they they asked whether the particles we are talking about are the same and as elementary particles. So I explained no, there are it's a, it's a it's a different field. But if we are staying with this field and we are saying, well, we are talking about particles from respiratory activities and not particles generated in, uh, I don't know, in uh, um, any high energy particle processes. So they shouldn't be really any conflict in terminology. Excellent. I guess, um, how do you think the best way, we're asking this question for people as well, and how do you think the best way to take this issue forward? So how do we get guidelines change now if we think about in australia and hnmrc infection control guidelines in the uk and in, in the us cdc guidelines so every sort of country's got their own national based guidelines some of that stems from what's happening uh, internationally and of course then we need to consider the localized approach about how do we bring on healthcare workers and others at the real local level to to to, to um, bring them into this conversation so how do you see this being taken forward? What do you see as the key things that need to happen to take this change in terminology forward? Well, uh, if we are talking about different things happening in different countries, so really we uh, should consider an, or an organization which is above the countries, which should help with this terminology. And this organization would be WHO. I know that there is a work now going going on uh, within a WHO group trying to uh, to do something about this terminology. How long this is going to go and what mm -hmm. will come out of this, we'll see. But hopefully that's what will come uh, from. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise uh, one country proposes another country what to do. That's probably not going to work mm -hmm. so WHO um, 
making terminology logical would be the best for the mm. world. But mm. there's there's another issue in all of this because, okay, there's one aspect is the terminology and the other aspect is the practical application mm. and practical application. And here we are talking about uh, what should be in the air, what shouldn't be in the air and what concentration. So this brings us to the topic of um, uh, hopefully in the future indoor air quality standards. Mm. Mm. Right now, uh, every country, including Australia, have outdoor air quality standards. <laughs> there are enforcement procedures and so on. But basically no country has indoor air quality standards. Australia mm. doesn't have. So mm. in indoor air, anything can be indoor in indoor air and there's no problem because there are no standards. Mm. Mm. This is a more complicated uh, topic. Um, more complicated than the whole complexity of indoor air standards, which would be enforceable compared to outdoor air quality standards. Mm. But really, this is something what we need aside mm. of the terminology. Yeah, in fact, um, we just, um, Martin, myself, and Phil, the, the podcasts, I guess, people who lead these podcasts, we had a discussion just the other day about exactly that topic and the need to to really have standards changed for building standards and various other things so that we can fundamentally improve the quality of the air when when and when things are built so that there are appropriate standards that are built to um there are two, two different aspects because what what we what exists right now are building codes so mm. this is what is when the building are designed and and built uh, this um these building codes are not perfect because it doesn't take into they don't take into account in uh, indoor air quality or infection transmission so that's, this, this is one uh, aspect, and, but of course we need to have building codes. But then what happens in the reality, that's a different thing. And building codes will not cover this. It has mm. to be measured. Mm. Uh, it has to be measured and taken into account the complexity of the interaction between indoor and outdoor air. Because we can design the building uh, well, perfectly well uh, in terms of removing um, what we generate, what human generates in terms of pathogen CO2 and so on. Uh, but if the stuff comes from outside, if outdoor air is polluted, so then there's a different problem. So so really, it's not only in, build in the building design, um, this should be taken into account, these different sources of air pollution, mm -hmm. but it should be measured in every indoor environment like it is in outdoor air. Mm. This is more complicated because mm -hmm. we cannot measure in every room mm. all the pollutants the way we measure it in outdoor air, even so the same WHO guidelines apply to both indoor and outdoor air. So mm. there is some complexity with this, but um, uh, the world made a huge progress in terms of local sensors and um, understanding of the interaction between these two environments. Mm, so mm. technologically, it's, it's, it's becoming possible. Excellent. And, and I guess the other, you touched on a practical implication about building codes and standards. And the other practical implication is, you know, in the healthcare environment for this type of terminology, what we've heard from people is this concept of grouping what was contact and airborne together and having respiratory protection and talking about the required respiratory protection rather than having differentiation between droplet and airborne but having you know contact precaution you know that that route but but also this respiratory protection route um, as a practical way to take this forward right. does that sound reasonable on your that sounds perfect perfectly mm. logical because mm. when we're talking about um this stuff which is emitted by 
people. So this is a continuum. In the in a close proximity to a person, infected person, the concentration of everything, large particles, small particles, is extremely high, very very fast dynamics of, of everything, and then mm. with time uh, and space uh, it stabilizes. But uh, ultimately, it is it is inhalation, so inhalation in a close proximity or inhalation uh, at a distance. So therefore, talking about protection against inhaling. Wherever mm. in in space it is, that's mm. perfectly logical. Excellent, look, Lydia. Thank you so much for your time. We could probably talk about this all day, and I hope we can get you back on the podcast down the track and hear more about what progress is being made um, on this topic. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on the program. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.